Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone, it's Annika. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Speak Up. Today I am coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I sincerely pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Today's conversation is all about twice exceptionality. The term 2E has been around since the mid-1990s but is something I've only been aware of over the past few years having had the privilege of knowing a few 2E students at the school I work at. I'm so keen to learn more about this area and I'm really thrilled to be chatting to a speech pathologist with expertise and a passion for working with 2E kids. Rebecca McKeon is a paediatric speech pathologist with over 20 years of clinical experience. He works at Starfish Speech Pathology in Kiama Downs and is based in the Sutherland Shire and St George area. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Beck. Hi, Annika. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm recording on the lands of the Darawal-speaking people today in the Sutherland Shire. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me. I'm so, so interested to explore this topic. And as I've mentioned, you've come very highly recommended. So I'm so (laughs) excited to to be chatting through a whole range of different things to do with 2E today. But let's start really broadly, if that's okay. Could you let us all know what twice exceptionality actually is and how it differs from giftedness? Twice exceptionality as a term is something that a lot of people haven't heard of uh, before. So yes, definitely good to start off with a definition of that one. Um, The term twice exceptionality originated in the United States, uh, where they tend to refer to any learning difference as an exceptionality. And so twice exceptional being the combination of giftedness and a learning difference um, is referred to as twice exceptionality. That often gets shortened to 2E. Um, So 2E and twice exceptionality mean the same thing. In Australia, you'll often also hear the term um, GLD or gifted with learning disability. Mm. So essentially, um, it is the combination of giftedness with another diagnosed disability, whether that be a neurodivergence, autism, ADHD, um, the range is, is huge. So I do have a good friend who's worked in this space for a long time and, and she does say that the only thing that giftedness precludes you from is a cognitive disability. So mm. you can have giftedness in conjunction with anything and everything else. Um, mm. And that is something that's important for people to bear in mind because I think we often have this idea in our heads of what giftedness is going to look like in a person. Mm. Um And, you know, as we say with many other types of of differences, um, if you've seen and met one gifted kid, you've met one. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I just ask what sort of, in terms of just giftedness, what sort of IQ range are we looking at for that? Again, that's not even set in stone. It's a tricky one um, to define, but it uh, generally speaking is considered the top 2%. So 98, um, the 98th percentile on a cognitive assessment and above um, Mm -hmm. would definitely be considered gifted. Um, And usually that's sort of around the 130 IQ range. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look on the Department of Education, New South Wales Department of Education website, they now talk about in their new um, updated policy, um, gifted and high potential learners. And they've actually Mm -hmm. expanded the bracket to sort of look at the top um, 20% of kids because they're recognising that even if you're not in that top two, there's a a larger proportion of kids that still need um, recognition and, and that higher ability reflected in their teaching so Mm. it 
does depend on on what definition you want to look at, but certainly, um, you know, that top 10% is considered to require something extra and that top 2% is very clearly gifted. Right. So I know you've sort of touched on in terms of 2E, there are these, I guess, subtypes. So there's um, giftedness and neurodivergence and giftedness and a learning uh, difficulty. And I also believe there's giftedness and mood disorders come in under 2E as well. Um, And giftedness and physical disability come under 2E. So it's quite broad. So this question might be a little tricky to answer. But do we know anything about prevalence rates of 2E in Australia? Or is that a really tricky question to answer? You're exactly right. It is a tricky question because it is so complex. Um, Generally speaking, the idea is that, you know, giftedness, when you look at those numbers, depending on whether we go for the 10 or or, um, to the 2%, um, that gives us the prevalence of giftedness in the population. And then we look at the prevalence of any and all of those other um, exceptionalities and we look at the overlap. Um, And some people will argue that it is Things like particularly emotional disturbances are perhaps more prevalent in the gifted population, but there isn't actually evidence to um, bear that out. So at this point in time, the general understanding is that you are just as likely to have a twice exceptional kid as you are um, to have someone who has that particular disability. Um, Mm. So if that disability has a prevalence of 10%, then the gifted population would be expected to have 10% representation of that disability as well. Um, Mm. The challenge comes in identification as well because sometimes these kids can be even trickier to pick up. Um, They can almost even out their their challenges and their gifts can balance each other out and they can often go flying under the radar um, Mm. from both ends of the scale. So it does make it really hard to actually track the data. Mm. Well, this was my next question, which was about sort of what age are children getting diagnosed? And is there also a pattern that the giftedness gets diagnosed before the other part or vice vice versa? Is there any information on that? Yeah, again, um, in terms of research, probably not so much. Um, Mm. Anecdotally, it's interesting. I have seen kids from preschoolers um, to high school kids who have been just identified. Um, Often it is the challenges that come up first. So often it's a child, you know, struggling with learning in the classroom or struggling with social connections or behaviour challenges that are coming up and the process of investigation begins and as often is the case, that includes a psychometric assessment to have a look at their uh, profile of of learning cognitive strengths and weaknesses and lo and behold that shows us Mm. often quite a spiky profile Mm. Um, but it is often where we can identify that, hang on a second, there's actually some real strengths coming through here that perhaps haven't been identified. Um, That said, you do also uh, hear of a number of families who know that their child is more capable than what they're showing the world, Um, and so they go and seek an assessment to be able to help sort of back up what they know that they're seeing themselves. So sometimes it will be that the the giftedness is identified first and then Mm -hmm. later on we explore why perhaps the child's not performing to the level that might be traditionally expected based on their um, potential Mm. on gifted testing. And, Beck, are there any gender differences? Are we seeing more boys falling under the 2E banner versus girls or quite even? I think the gender differences that we see are the same ones that we see in terms of identification um, of a range of particularly neurodivergence. Um, We talk quite a lot these days about the autistic um, 
process of identification and the fact that girls traditionally have been harder to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often especially the case when you're talking about gifted girls who can mask um again, stereotypically, but can often mask more effectively and therefore fly under the radar for longer periods of time. So it's probably more um, important to look at the the gender representation in the, the specific disability mm. that's relevant to the child. Right. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know, as you've already touched on, that this is an incredibly diverse group. So um, again, this next question might be a bit tricky, but are there common characteristics that we might see within 2E children? Um, As you say, it it is a really diverse group. So it's hard to, you you can't necessarily give a profile of this is exactly what a a 2E child is going to look like, but commonalities will be curiosity. Um, It will often be a strong sense of justice. Um, It might be and certainly for the 2E kids rather than gifted specifically, um, it will be that disparity. They'll be the child who you think, oh, my goodness, you can't do this, and then, wow, you blew me away with Mm -hmm. the next task. Um, They'll be the kids that come out with something out of the blue that you think, gosh, that's deep. Where did that come from when you couldn't do X, Y, or Z this morning? Um, Mm -hmm. So they're they're the ones that will surprise us and be a little bit of an enigma because Mm -hmm. they seem to have such scattered skills. Uh, they might have particularly strong interests in one area that show off their strengths and then they might, you know, really struggle in another area. And so there's times where you think, wow, you're so bright, and then there's times that you think, oh, my gosh, how are you going to get by? Um, I think they're, they're probably some key characteristics, but when you look at, you know, the characteristics of a gifted child and those things like intense curiosity and interest in um an ability to grasp concepts that are beyond their age and beyond what you would expect for their peers, you, we still should see those things in twice exceptional right. kids. Yeah. Um, but they might be hidden a little bit by some of the other challenges. Right. I can imagine these children are quite confusing to a school teacher um, in a classroom. Yes. I could imagine that would be, um, yeah, very confusing for a teacher to, to work out um, how to maximise their learning. But I also can imagine this group has a whole lot of kind of myths that people might have about them. What sort of myths have you come across in your work um, in regards to 2E kids? Yeah, look, I mean, there's lots of myths that um, pertain to gifted kids in general, um, even if you take out the second exceptionality. Things like, you know, they're all going to look like Sheldon Cooper, um, or the good doctor and, you know, have these amazing blow-you-away skills that they can just recite things and and know things. I think one of the biggest ones is that, you know, gifted kids will know things without being taught. We all have to be taught. Mm. Um, Gifted kids might learn things more quickly. They might learn things with less repetition. They might be more engaged and eager to soak up the learning. They might ask a million questions to draw extra learning out of you, but they still actually need to be exposed to the opportunity to learn. Right. that, it's not out of thin air. It's it? not out of thin air. That's right. right. So, you know, if, for example, with maths, if we've never taught kids particular concepts, they're not going to come out with trigonometry because they, mm. you know, they might be capable of learning it. But if we've never exposed them to the concepts, then it makes sense that they're not going to know how to do it at this point. Mm. Um, that obviously then translates to twice exceptional kids as well. Um, and one of the biggest challenges with the twice exceptional kids is that they can present with those scattered skills. So I was talking to a teacher only at the end of last term who said to me, I had to let go the idea that 
all of the skills were going to be at the same level and that we didn't move on with some, you know, skills in some areas until everything else had caught up. Because for this particular child, they'd probably be waiting until year 12 and everything still mm. wouldn't have caught up and then we never would have moved on. Um, yeah, exactly, when they needed to. <laughs> when they needed to. So it, yeah. it's definitely a, a real juggling act of looking at um, the individual strengths and weaknesses in particular areas um, and how we can feed the gift and at the same time um, nurture the, the challenge. And I do think that's where a speech pathologist we're ideally placed to work with this population. Um, so much of the core of our work is actually looking at people as individuals and looking mm. at where the breakdown is happening. Um, we break tasks apart all the time. We look at mm. what scaffold needs to be put in place to be able to then help structure that task so that the child can be successful. Um, that's exactly the kind of approach that these kids need. Uh, and I think that's where we can really benefit working in conjunction with teachers sure. um, and have have a really positive impact on, you know, the, the work that they're doing with the kids on a day-to-day basis as well. I know that teachers are often feeling much more supported when they can look at, oh, I get now why this child's having trouble with this particular task. So that's the bit that I need to help them with. Mm. Um, it just, you know, we have that skill set to be able to break things down to that uh, lower level, foundational level, to mm. be able to work out exactly what supports are going to be helpful to put in place. Absolutely. And I can imagine um, we have a role in adding, or I guess, suggesting adjustments and what have you to learning plans at school. And um, that's I can see that that would be quite an important part of our role, supporting these kids too. So yes, supporting the teacher, but also helping them translate some of that to actual formal adjustments. That Absolutely. Yeah. Formal adjustments for these kids are critical. Um, and a big part of our role is really helping all of those that are working with 2E kids to understand what that means and what that looks like. You know, often we look at an IQ score um, and we have particular expectations about what that potential means the child will achieve and it doesn't always translate into performance. Um, Particularly, it doesn't necessarily always translate for straight gifted kids, let alone for kids that have a second exceptionality or more going on. Um, And so these kids can sometimes look like they're just lazy or not working hard enough or, you know, those sorts of things and they need to to step up. Um, Mm. But really we need to look at supporting supporting them to do that. Um, If anyone's interested in looking at Gagné's model of differentiation and talent development, um, that's a really nice kind of model. It underpins the gifted policy for New South Wales Department of Education, but it also is just a really nice model that talks about, you know, the gifts that we might inherently have. And in order to translate that to talent, there's lots of factors that interfere um, and intervene and either support or contradict along the way. And that's where our role is and that's where we can help people working with these kids understand what their role is too and the things that we can do to to help that process of expression of talent because I think we automatically assume sometimes through lack of understanding and experience with this population that having being gifted means that you're going to actually be talented and there's things that need to come together for that to actually happen. Yeah, absolutely. If I can sort of direct your attention a little bit back to um, a speech and language assessment. So imagine we've got um, a little kid that's come to see us in our private practice um, and we're asked to do a speech and language assessment with them. Is there anything in particular we should be considering with these children? And this might be a silly question, but would we be expecting language scores to correlate with their IQ scores or not? 
that depends and that's the really challenging answer yeah good. <laughs> um, yeah look these kids um the signs that you might get sometimes when you're doing a language assessment I mean uh, there's a few cases I can draw on and I, I always like to think in terms of cases yeah. so um you know I remember back to the the very early days of my career before I actually knew anything about twice exceptionality um, assessing a little girl who scored above the 90th percentile and you know family had no concerns but preschool had lots of concerns and so we sent her back off with this 90th percentile problems not in speech and language see you later Mm -hmm. and they came back six months later and the child was still having all of these difficulties in the classroom following instructions etc we did a different language assessment we got the same kind of scores And when I delved deeper at that point and talked with staff, the child was not following instructions, but it wasn't because she wasn't understanding instructions. It was actually because they weren't interesting and challenging enough. So she was creating her own instructions. Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) my assessment initially was correct that this child didn't have a speech and language disorder, but it was more helpful in the end when I went further um, and was able to look more closely at what the challenges were and be able to then connect my results to those challenges and help those working with her understand what she needed Um, because she still needed adjustments and modifications. She just didn't need speech therapy. Right, exactly. Um, The... Plenty of other kids actually do. That's, you know, that you can have language difficulties, particularly, um, you know, kids that are autistic, for example, uh, might still have those higher order language difficulties or Mm. be very literal in their language. So it's patterns that we need to look for in our assessments. Uh, If we notice that some aspects of testing are really strong, for example, they might have a great vocabulary because if a kid's a really good reader and they've been engaging in higher order conversations, they're more likely to have that stronger um, vocabulary. But then maybe they have difficulty producing a text. So it's teasing apart, doing enough testing that you can tease apart the differences and the disparities that you might get. Because I would I would say that when we see a twice exceptional child that does have language needs, we will get that spiky profile that often yeah. would be similar to their psychometric assessment. Right. Um, and so you would find yeah. some areas that are, are real strengths and other areas that are real weaknesses. And that helps us then work out how to support that child moving forward. Mm. Um, commonly, I think the kids that present to speech pathologists are the ones that maybe perhaps are dyslexic. So we might have yeah. reading difficulties that aren't necessarily consistent with their oral language abilities. Uh, And so it's really important to assess both of those skills in depth and be able to tease apart the differences there. Um, And we also might commonly see the kids that have either social, so pragmatic difficulties, or writing as a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, any combination of those. But, you know, they would be my most common referrals. They're really bright, but they will just never write anything. Or we can only ever get one sentence written down, but if I ask him, he can tell me. Yeah, that's you know, right. Pages and pages. Yeah, that area of written output is um, definitely one you yep. hear common, <laughs> commonly, isn't yep. it? Yeah. Um, and it sounds like, yes, yeah, so you're being quite considered then in what actual assessment tools you're going to use. And I guess thinking quite broadly by the sounds of it, um, you've mentioned that with some children, you've done multiple assessments on the same area to see if that gives you different information. And yes. so it sounds like quite a sort of thoughtful process entering an assessment with a 2E child. Um, to make sure you can, as you said, pick up those patterns and actually get the depth of information that you need um, to connect it can often be quite dots. surprising when yeah. you do compare multiple assessments to see, you know, the areas that if you'd just done one, you would have dismissed, mm. um, whereas if you can do a couple, you know, and, and 
actually having the point, it's not that one is necessarily better than the other, having the point of comparison gives yeah. you really useful information uh, because then you can look at the subtle differences in presentation of each of those assessments and help work out why for that particular child one presentation worked for them and the other didn't. Um, yeah. And those sorts of things can, again, then give you information to be yeah. able to help support the classroom teacher. Exactly, you know, your adjustments and, and support in place. This works yep. really well and we see the child's strengths. When we don't have that particular support in place, this is where we perform. Yeah. I do um, have a child that I've assessed a couple of years in a row on, um, in conjunction with an OT, we've looked at handwriting speed and those sorts of things as well. And this child will refuse to write. Um, but will happily talk. So he's one of those classic kids that will barely put pen to paper, but will happily tell you a story till the cows come home. Um, and when we've done formal testing with him, there's been around an 80 percentile point difference between his performance on a written text when it was either scribed or voice to text versus actually handwritten by himself. Wow. And we've done the handwriting version second. So that's with the mm -hmm. opportunity for rehearsal and scripting and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's, it is amazing the difference that you can see, you know, when we find the way that these kids work. Yeah, well, hopefully that little one's got a speech-to-text adjustment in their learning Absolutely plan at school. Yes. <laughs> and that was the purpose of that testing was to be able yeah. to justify that. Um, yeah, well, that's right, isn't it? Sometimes with schools you do need to have that evidence, even though you know in your gut what, what the end outcome is going to be, you still have to go through that assessment process to give them the evidence to then get yep. it into those plans, unfortunately. Exactly. get it into those plans, works. which then supports the teacher to be able to make yep. it happen. And yeah, Exactly. Okay, so if we are providing intervention then to um, a twice exceptional child, is there anything in addition to what we might be thinking with any other child that we're working with um, that would be important considerations before we start any intervention with them? I think the key things are um, like as speech pathologists, because I've spoken to a number of people um, over the years who've kind of contacted because I know I have an interest in this field and they're concerned about taking on this particular child and whether they'll be able to, to do them justice in um, working with them. And the thing that I always say to people is remember that you have the skills. You have the skills to break down what's going on for this child. The main thing we need to let go of is adherence to the norms mm -hmm. uh, because if we stick too strictly to the norms, we're probably going to sell these kids short. But if we look at what they're needing to do with their language skills in terms of, so that might be that they're a child who desperately wants to read about, um, you know, high-level science concepts and, you know, access uh, that sort of information. And so they need their their reading and their vocabulary to be able to support that. Um, we, we need to look at what they're needing to do with their language and then that then guides, you know, where we focus our intervention. So we have all the tools. They're the tools that we use with kids in general. Um, the main thing that I encourage people to think about is, taking off the restrictions that we might place on ourselves based on age. Don't right. necessarily sit there and think, um, oh, I've never done this with a seven-year-old before. Yeah. It's not your typical yeah. seven-year-old. That's okay. Yeah. If it yeah. works for that child and it's addressing what they need, go for it. Um, get rid of you know, those we, developmental norms out of your head. <laughs> yeah, get the developmental norms out of your head and just look at what, um, you know, the child is actually needing and what you would do for somebody else who was presenting to you with that particular need. Um, and so sometimes that means that we have to be a bit flexible and pull on the mm -hmm. skills that we'd use with an adolescent and a preschooler in the same session, mm -hmm. um, which gives us an insight into what teachers are doing all day, every day with these kids mm. because they're doing the same thing. You know, yeah. they yeah. present with such varied skills um, that it really just is about looking at their individual need and how we can target that. And I think when we give ourselves the freedom to do that, 
it actually isn't as hard as you think it is on the outside. Yeah, so don't be intimidated. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Be flexible and work, you know, work with them. It is really important to have those conversations with the family and with the class teacher um, and any other professionals working with these kids because it's important to identify, you know, the specific need that they present with so that we can be really functional in what we're targeting. Mm. And that's the case for any of our our kids that we work with. So that's certainly not anything that's new and unique. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about everyone's favourite topic, which is NDIS? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What's your experience of 2E children? And I guess um, knowing that there are those different categories of twice exceptionality, what's your experience of 2E children accessing support via NDIS? Experience-wise, I would say it can be trickier. Um, ultimately 2E itself is not a category that's recognised by NDIS but the specific disability that a child might be diagnosed with potentially is. So the process for application in terms of those disabilities would be the same as it would be if you took the giftedness out of it. Um, The challenge can be that because you're looking at functional impact um, it's harder sometimes when you've got a twice exceptional child who is able to mask. So where I said before um, you know they can often look like they're sitting in the middle and so the strengths that they have are balancing out the challenges that they present with and it doesn't mean that that child is not struggling and having difficulty um, but it might mean that they're sitting at a percentile that's higher than another child who didn't have the giftedness at play as well and so that can be harder then to justify to the NDIS the benefit of funding. Mm. Have you ever not mentioned the giftedness part in an application just out of interest <laughs> um not that I can recall so I would always meant you'd always report on those yeah I tend to I mean I always report on on any factors that are appropriate for a child mm-hmm. in terms of their um, background history but I guess when I'm writing those reports my focus is on the need that's presenting yeah exactly. um, and, and the functional challenges and so I don't harp on the strengths because that's I hate writing those reports for exactly that reason it's it's all about the negativity whereas so much of the rest of the time we're trying to be all about the strengths but um yeah Yeah. I I do I don't shy away from including it but at the same time um there are times where I have reflected on it in terms of being something that allows a little bit of masking of the level of difficulty that's experienced but overall it's usually just something that's mentioned in passing and the focus is on the challenges yeah for sure yeah so would you be able to pass on, Beck, any really useful resources or point us in the right direction in regards to, I don't know, if we, we do have a 2E child that we're working with or assessing or need to support, where, where could we go for some useful information? Yeah, I mean, look, it's useful to know some of the, the resources that are out there for both us and also to direct families towards because yeah, yeah. it's an area that families often um, don't understand a lot about and certainly um, teachers often don't understand a lot about it. I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's a very small percentage of our um, teaching degrees in in New South Wales, certainly across Australia, that actually have um, giftedness as a compulsory unit. So most teachers don't I could imagine out of university virtual. having yeah. ever heard of the term. I could um, imagine it would be virtually nothing. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple, um, but even then it's uh, they're often optional units and mm-hmm. they're a small portion of, you know, particularly when you're talking about learning about GLD or twice exceptionality, they're often a small proportion of a disability subject. So 
it's something that teachers through no fault of their own don't have um, a large amount of experience with themselves. So in my experience, when I talk with teachers about what's going on for a particular child and I explain that side of things, they're really interested. Um, so it's, it's helpful to have some resources that you can point them in the direction of. Um, the AAEGT, so the Australian Association for the Education of the Gifted and Talented, mm-hmm. is our national association. Uh, they have a number of different resources and they also have links to individual state associations that have further resources and links and sometimes um professional development workshops and all of those sorts of things, um, sometimes even events for families and that kind of thing. Unfortunately, COVID has put paid to a lot of those over the last few years, but it would be nice to see it starting to come back. So that's definitely one resource, which is a nice one because it's Australian. Um, There's plenty out there in terms of uh, if you look a little bit more broadly, there's a lot coming out of the States, but it's nice to look at some of the Australian stuff. Mm -hmm. The New South Wales Department of Education have only re, uh, redone their gifted education policy in the last number of years. So there is a literature review on, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a literature review called um, Revisiting Gifted Education that was published in 2019. Mm-hmm. You can find that fairly easily when you Google the title. Um, it's on the CC website. It's also on the Department of Education website. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really accessible, easy read. Um, And it was a lot of literature condensed into a really nice document that is usable. It's it's quick. Um, So it tends to give a nice overview. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know that it's evidence-based. So that's a really nice one for people to have a read of themselves, but also perhaps to share with teachers. Um, Linked in with that then is the High Potential and Gifted Education section of the New South Wales Department of Education website. Mm -hmm. They actually have their policy linked there. They have links to research, but they actually also have links now to quite a lot of supporting documentation, and that's still actually being developed and added all the time. Um, So they actually have links for supporting educators and also for supporting parents. Um, And there's a number of different things on there, including the differentiation adjustment tool. So it is actually a tool that you can click on that goes into any different types of ways that you might want to differentiate a task Mm -hmm. and then examples of ways that that could be achieved. So I think for a speech pathologist writing a report and wanting to give a few ideas, it could be a tool that's even linked in the report but also might give you a few ideas of examples that you could um, make note of. It might, if you're working with a child, give you some ideas of things that you might want to actually experiment with and try and see how they go but also certainly to be encouraging teachers to look towards because it can then inform those IEPs. Um, Mm. So there's some really useful resources there. Similarly, um, Catholic Education has uh, links to their website and resources on their page as well. So there's some really good ones there. Um, In terms of looking at strategies for supporting gifted kids in general, there's some really um, powerful documents that came out of America over the last couple of decades, A Nation Deceived and A Nation Empowered, and they're both available as PDFs for free download. So there's some interesting information in there specifically about acceleration. Um, But that, I guess, is one of the myths that we could touch on as well, that acceleration can't be applied to twice exceptional kids because sometimes it can and sometimes it needs to be. And so they might need acceleration of, of varying types as part of their support to help nurture their gift at the same time as needing 
support to be able to other areas yeah. yeah keep them up there with with the other areas mm. that they're finding difficult mm. so it might be mm. that they need voice to text and they need to be able to do text voice but they actually can mm. access the curriculum at a higher level or maybe they can access the curriculum at a higher level in one subject area and not in another so mm. all of these sorts of things are, are ones that we need to um you know as speech pathologists we don't need to make those decisions but we certainly need to be aware that that these things could be relevant and helpful for these kids that's excellent, Beck. We'll make sure we put all of those into a reference list or um, link it into the show notes so people can can access those um, resources. They sound amazing. Are you aware of any parent support organisations just off the top of your head that could be useful for us, you know, directing families to as a as a support? For yeah, families? look, definitely the AAAGT yep. is one for okay, parents, so that would be the parents to as well. Yep. Yes, definitely. Um, that's parents and professionals alike. Okay. Um, there are also the state associations for each state. So there is one for New South mm-hmm. Wales. Um, the state associations do also have supports for families. Great. And in this day and age of social media, particularly following on from COVID, there are actually quite a lot of online groups. Sure. Um, if you Google GLD Australia, there is actually an, um, it used to be a Yahoo forum. Now it is it's, it is one of those ones that's run through email. There is a website, though, that you can find and it tells you, it has the link and tells you the steps to follow to be able to get on. Um, but essentially that is a forum where people can just send an email out to the forum with a question mm-hmm. that they might have. Um, members of the forum are a whole range of people, so including um, parents but also professionals who work in the field. There's a number of people involved in GLD Australia that have been involved in that field for a really, really long time and just Mm. love sharing their expertise and their experience because they know how hard that is to come by and how Mm. tricky it is to kind of navigate this field. So um, that is actually a really worthwhile resource to to have a look at for both professionals and parents alike. So, Beck, with your extensive um, expertise in this field, I'm wondering if you would mind sharing a couple of case scenarios or examples with us? Uh, sure, there's so many to draw on, um, but it, things I guess that are, that are interesting um, or little ones that stand out to me, for example, would be the preschool child who had no friends in the last year of preschool and preschool were recommending the child stay back because they had uh, social concerns. Mm-hmm. But when we actually looked into it, that child had had more friends the year before and there'd been a large cohort who, who had then moved on to school. And so the child was actually not interacting socially because they were with a whole lot of younger students. Mm. And so that child, ultimately the decision was made that it wasn't a language challenge, it wasn't a social challenge, it was actually that they needed to be with like minds. And mm. so that child ended up going to school early, subsequently accelerated um, mm. and has actually thrived in that environment. That was a good decision then. Imagine. So I can't imagine how it would have gone if it had been. But... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so valid concerns and observations from the, the point of view mm. of the preschool staff, but sure. just I guess an example of the ways that we need to look a little bit more deeply rather than just look at that surface, they're not playing with other children. Because when you mm. actually talked to that child about why they weren't playing with other children, they said, um, I'd be happy to play with the other kids, but they only play with one thing for a couple of minutes and then they move on. I want to play mm. a long game. Mm. So that's actually fair enough. I can understand that's a very that. good insight, actually. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> there was another student that I'd worked with over the years who uh, began to thrive in the classroom when it came to writing. This was one of those kids who didn't write. But when the teacher placed her with the top writing group, 
and just provided scaffolds for her actual writing. So if they needed to produce a text and her focus was the conclusion, she actually gave this student a text that was three quarters completed and she only had to write the conclusion. Mm. But she was able to be with that higher level group because she needed the higher order discussion. Mm. Mm. She needed the engagement and the challenge and the creativity that that higher order group was coming up with to be able to then engage with the task at all. Mm. Um, And so this child actually was autistic, ADHD and gifted. And so Mm. she really struggled with the uh, executive functioning planning side of things, but she needed that rich conversation. So Mm. that was, uh, it's just a nice example of how we need to be a little bit flexible with how we approach that. That is an awesome example of differentiation, I think. Yes, and really recognising exactly what the need was for that child. Absolutely, because I could imagine it would not be uncommon for that student to be placed in the lower group. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And really, based on output, that is where Mm. they should have been. Mm. But based Mm. on need that was actually going to drive learning, Mm. that lower group was not going to help them at all. Mm. And And then to differentiate the things she found challenging. Yes, yes, to then allow her to actually access that higher group, which is where she needed to be. Amazing. What an awesome teacher. Yeah, yes. Brilliant example of a teacher being Mm. really flexible. Um, I have met a child who could fix anyone's electronic device but could not read, so had a toolkit in their bag and used to actually fix things that people would bring in and hand over and fix it by the end of the day. So it's just, you know, finding, I mean, we do this with all of our kids anyway, or we should, but um, finding that passion and finding the thing that, that gives them that spark and then being able to use that to then tack into Um, the other areas that they might find a bit more challenging and help them find the purpose as well. The one last one I wanted to um, pop into was that this one was only recent, but I had a child who will, again, refuse to write most of the time, will actually often write no on the page when asked to write, Um, but coded a poem. So passion is uh, technology and, you know, run rings around, certainly run rings around me in terms of, Mm. uh, you know, their tech skills and was happy to be able to actually write the poem in code, which wow. was, you know, beyond the next level of challenging. So it's yeah. yeah, pushing us to be that bit creative with the way that we approach things as well. Absolutely. And I guess using some of these as examples for teachers, because, you know, I, I still remember having a conversation with a teacher many years ago who said to me, and this was a child who had had four different IQ tests because people didn't believe his results. The first one had put him at the 99th percentile. Um, and people didn't see that in the classroom, and so he'd just been retested and retested on all of these different measures, and he'd scored anywhere from the 99th to the 3rd percentile. Mm, Wow. And when you looked at the differences in the tests, because they weren't retesting on all the same assessment tools, they were using different types of measures, it was the ones that tapped into his area of disability, surprise, Mm. surprise, where Mm. he scored the lowest. And so it really, to me, made perfect sense that he was going to have trouble on that task that was very much a a verbal and a writing task versus Mm. something else that was going to tap into his more visual spatial skills. Mm. Um, Mm. And talking with the teacher who at that point said, oh, do you believe those results, do you? said, yes, talk to him about this, talk to him about that. And when she did, she said, oh, my goodness, I've just never had him engage with me in that way. Wow. Um, and I hadn't seen those strengths before. And so when this kid was was nurtured in terms of his strengths, he ended up winning prizes in science. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, he was dyslexic. He was dysgraphic. He still needed a lot of support when it came to, you know, synthetic structured phonics to be able to work on those skills. But he had a science brain and yep. was he needed to be able to have that um, opportunity to shine in that area mm. as well. 
And I think yeah. that's the thing, you know, tall poppy syndrome in Australia is such a, a big thing. Yeah. yeah. And we often, particularly if we see these kids who are kind of masking and so they're looking like they're pretty average, it's like, well, they're doing okay. Like they're not the bottom of the class. Why are we working with them? Why do they need help? Mm. Average mm. is okay. Average is okay. That's mm. perfectly fine. But it's also okay to be above average too. <laughs> it is okay to be above average. And particularly when you've got a brain that's wanting that challenge and it's wanting that um that stretch it's wanting that higher order conversation and it's becoming incredibly frustrated these kids are overrepresented in the prison system mm. um and they're overrepresented wow. in the prison system because they're overrepresented in the statistics of kids that drop out of school because they're frustrated and mm. jaded and give up and so it is important that we work with this population um mm as we do with any population that's having difficulty because we can make a real difference between in keeping them engaged and actually helping them feel positive about themselves, feel positive, make gains in their learning. Um, yeah, sometimes just letting kids sit where they are isn't, isn't okay. And so it is important for us to be able to help support them to be able to, you know, yeah. meet their potential is such a horrible term because it's so hard to quantify, but ultimately no, that's but what we're trying to achieve. And to yep. allow them to bring these amazing things to our lives as well. Yep. Um, yep. That last uh, case you were just mentioning, that sounds like somebody will be reading about in the paper one day. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> created or come up with something amazingly scientific that is um, breathtaking you yep. know that's that's what we want and and yeah I mean as you say tall poppy syndrome is something that is quite rife in Australia but we should be celebrating that they can these kids can bring some amazing amazing gifts to our lives as well so yes. yep. yeah that sounds awesome. Beck. thank you so, so much for joining me. I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. It is such a fascinating area. Um, I think it is a growing area in Australia, as you touched on earlier. Yes. America seems to be a little bit um, ahead in their thinking in this space, but I certainly feel um, we're, we're catching up and we're getting there and it's people like you, Beck. Um, helping us uh, develop our knowledge that um, will get us there. So thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. I think it's fantastic that we're talking about this topic because, as you say, it's one that's, you know, been little understood for a long time and it's really important to be able to support these families. So it's great to be able to have the conversation. Absolutely. And thank you, as always, for tuning in and having Beck and I in your ears today. Have a fantastic week ahead and be sure to join us again next Wednesday. Thanks again, Beck. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.